good all-round serviceman is really four mechanics in one. The Outline World Dispatch. Wednesday, May 3rd, 2017. I'm Tolu Adionwe. Today on The Dispatch, Jeff Ihaza examines the length of pop songs. As the tools for producing and sharing music become more universal, shorter songs are emerging. Andy Martino questions the name of net neutrality. You know, neutrality, neutral, it's like either or, Switzerland. And I look at how publishers still aren't happy about the New York Times bestseller cuts. Here's The Dispatch. Culture. There's a lingering resilience to Frank Ocean's second album, Endless. The songs on the record exist like fragments of dreams. We hear snippets of fully realized tracks jutting out like samples that seem familiar but can't be placed. There are only four songs on the whole record that last more than three minutes, and most are just over 60 seconds. But the album doesn't feel incomplete. Instead of making you want more, the brevity of Endless inspires repeat listens. Frank Ocean isn't alone. With traditional radio being replaced by online streaming, new artists are discovering that many of the old rules don't apply. Take the 22-year-old rapper Lil Uzi Vert. His buzzing single, Exo Tour Life, sits at just around three minutes. The rapper's two breakout tracks, You Is Right and Do What I Want, clock in well under the three-minute mark and owe much of their success to memes. Vine, the now-deceased social network famous for looping videos, has been responsible for breaking some of the past year's biggest songs. There's Salento's Watch Me Whip and Lil Yachty's Minnesota. Songs that grew popular on Vine had just six seconds to catch an audience's attention. The result was a spree of hook-driven, melodic hits. Many of today's biggest hip-hop songs have this earworm quality. Technology has maximized songwriters' efficiency. This is different from the early days of pop music, when there were more specific guidelines about how songs needed to be packaged in order to get radio play. With the advent of the 45-inch vinyl, artists had to make sure their most popular songs could be cut to three minutes because of the limitations of the record itself. That fundamentally shaped how American pop music functioned. As technology progressed, a lot of artists experimented with longer songs. Data from musicbrains.org suggests that in the decades following the 1950s, when the 45 was introduced, the average length of popular songs increased from under three minutes to an average of around four by the mid-2000s. And now, as the tools for producing and sharing music become more universal, even shorter songs are emerging. Many of rap's young upstarts gain fame from self-produced tracks. Perhaps thanks to the rudimentary nature of their production, they tend to rely on sparse arrangements. Ugly God, a rapper from Houston who's quickly becoming one of the genre's most eccentric young voices, amasses millions of plays on SoundCloud with his two-minute absurdist flows. I ain't got time for no wife, yeah. you kiss bitches, I pipe, yeah. Personalized playlist on Spotify or Apple Music bear similarities to an even older music format, the jukebox. David Ensminger, an author covering music and art, told me by email, quote, the curated daily mix of the likes of Spotify and the changing role of listeners from being passive to active suggest a personalized jukebox effect to me, hence a return of short, sharp, potent tunes, just like that format determined, end quote. The ways that fans listen to music have always had an effect on how artists construct it. It is still relatively early in the era of online streaming to determine just how different our listening habits will become. 
but artists like Frank Ocean and the young crop of up-and-comers finding fame on SoundCloud are experimenting in ways that remain exciting for fans, no matter how brief. The future. Recently, outline writer Andy Martino has been covering the FCC's proposed changes to net neutrality rules, but he'd never been interested in it until recently. Because frankly, it sounds pretty dull. So Andy, today you wrote a piece uh, where you kind of came clean that you have it. You didn't really know what net neutrality was until a few weeks ago. Well, it's boring, Tolu. Uh, that's the thing about net neutrality, and I don't know if you found this too, and I, some of our listeners may have found this, but even uh, when a popular comedian like John Oliver does a bit... Yes, net neutrality. The only two words that promise more boredom in the English language are featuring Sting. And... It's very hard to hold your attention to it, and it was very hard for me as someone who's not natively interested in tech issues to like sit down and read about what net neutrality is. So I only got into it initially through the need to do some reporting and research on it. Uh, but I was one of the many, many people, Tola, whose eyes just glaze right over at that phrase, net neutrality. Um, so why did you decide that it was important? As I said, I'm not someone who's necessarily interested in tech, but I'm interested in social justice. And I saw that this was a free speech issue because what net neutrality basically is is a regulation that means that these big companies like Verizon, Comcast, AT&T cannot charge extra for delivering your content faster. And then if you want to get to a really visceral level to it, I was started thinking about my four-year-old son and how whether or not I'm interested in tech or internet issues, he's growing up in a world in which the internet is the dominant form of discourse. So if that become set policy-wise as something that's not democratic and not open and free, uh, then I'm passing off a, a, a less democratic world to my child. And that's when I got pissed off about the whole thing. So you made the argument that net neutrality needs a rebrand, and you spoke to an expert about that. Yeah, I think a lot of the problem is the phrase, because, as I said, once you get into the concept, it's fairly clear. So where did the term originally come from? It's 2003, a professor who's now at Columbia named Tim Wu wrote a paper, coined the term net neutrality, and it stuck, unfortunately so, for the, the lack of catchiness that it has. It's something that was created at the university level and not at a branding or advertising or PR firm where maybe it should have been created. So I spoke with a guy named Eli Altman, who's the creative director at a branding and naming firm called 100 Monkeys, which is based out in the Bay Area, and he was brainstorming with me a little bit uh, first of all, and what's wrong with net neutrality? And he was saying, you know, neutrality, neutral. It's like either or, Switzerland. Part of it is is essentially kind of winning the battle for what picture pops into people's heads when they hear the phrase net neutrality. Mm -hmm. um, and right now, that picture is boring. So I asked him to push that into what could work, and he came up with the term data discrimination. Discrimination is a strong, charged term, as it should be, and, you know, it's strong when it applies to people, um, and it's, it's strong when it applies to data, too. I think that would grab people and make them click on stories about this issue more than a term like net neutrality. However... Uh, Eli also made the point that it's really difficult to rename something, even if it's a bad name. So another way that branding experts can approach this is not by doing a name change, but 
by trying to change the associations around it. Uh, th- there could be an ad campaign explaining what this is. It could be like these people are trying to ruin the Internet. Let's protect the Internet. Freedom, discrimination, buzzwords like that. If you throw them at net neutrality and, c- and you can't change the term net neutrality, at least we're starting to build different associations than the boredom that I think it currently evokes for people. Thanks, Andy. Thank you, Tolu. Culture. Three months ago, the New York Times cut 10 categories from its bestsellers list. Among them, manga, paperback and hardcover graphic novels, children's middle grade paperbacks and ebooks, young adult paperbacks and ebooks, ebook fiction and nonfiction, and paperback mass market fiction. The literary world freaked out, concerned that the loss would hurt their sales and make it even more difficult for smaller publishers and niche genres to survive. Now that some time has passed, the results of that change are starting to show. The books on the Times list are cultural mainstays. These books are known, and they become even more well-known once they make the list. A spokesperson for the paper told me that, quote, the change allows us to devote more space and resources to our coverage beyond the bestsellers list, end quote. But many felt the move seemed to delegitimize certain types of books. Graphic novels, for example, have been selling well and gaining prestige and cartoonists credited the Times list for better visibility. Romance novels, which are widely popular, were also penalized because most of them fall into the mass market paperback category. It's impossible to say just how much the changes impacted book sales, but the numbers don't look good. As of this past April, sales are hurting for several of the eliminated categories. Graphic novels were 5% down in sales relative to this period last year. Romance sales were down 10% and mass market sales were down 6%. That's according to the NPD group. Demand has surfaced for alternative lists to replace the Grey Ladies, but none have succeeded yet. Publishers Weekly already puts out a list, which includes several of the categories removed from the Times. Amazon also has lists available on its site for top-selling books. But those, of course, only measure the books sold on Amazon. With the biggest vehicle for recognition of up-and-coming and and indie authors now gone, one big worry for the future of the publishing world is how to get people to buy books by unfamiliar authors. An editor within Penguin Random House who asked to remain anonymous termed this dilemma the problem of continued consolidation, where publishers rely on only a few big-name books a year to achieve commercial success. The editor said, quote, every publisher has one or two books they're really dependent on, end quote. And for first-time authors who don't yet have the notoriety that it can take to sell a book, without the New York Times stamp of approval, it's going to be harder than ever to convince publishers to take a risk on them. That concludes The Dispatch. I'm Tolu Adionwe. Till tomorrow. 